When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started back in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with the actor, writer, director, and science-curious artist, Alan Alda. I grew up watching him in reruns of M.A.S.H., where his character, Hawkeye Pierce, was so specific and relatable that he feels in my memory like a not-too-distant relative. And in Horace and Pete, Louis C.K.'s 2016 brilliant web TV dramedy, Alan underwent a miraculous metamorphosis into a bitter, racist barman who is also a fully-fleshed human being. But wait, there's more. For decades, Alan Alda has been helping to heal the ancient rift between highly technical science and ordinary curiosity. More on that shortly. Alan's new book, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face, shares what he and science have learned about how we can communicate better. It's no exaggeration to say that it's a matter of life or death. Welcome to Think Again, Alan. Thank you. Well, that's an impressive introduction. I can't, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, it is, it's a voluminous one for sure, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, I, I have to say one thing that really caught me, my attention in your book was when you talked about doing Scientific American Frontiers, the yeah. show where you interview scientists, and how in the early episodes you went in with a list of questions, and then, or maybe the first episode only? or Well, what, like, no, for a while I did it, for maybe uh, a year of the 11 years. I really can't remember, but at a certain point I realized going in with a list of questions was really not exercising my own curiosity. And it wasn't getting the stuff out of them that was most interesting, which was their personal connection to their own science. They, if I came in with a list of questions, tell me about how this machine works. Right. Then they tell me about the machine. They don't tell me about the trouble they had making the machine. Right. The, the hope they had to look into the innards of nature and that kind of thing. The, the, the excitement of it wasn't as great when it was mechanical and, and just I ask and you answer. But when it was an interaction between us, it was exciting. And that's the only reason, I think, to do an, any kind of interview. And so often it's just a series of like, canned questions. It's, it's, it, the questions really become softballs so you can hit it out of the park with your lecture. Right. You know, but right, right. I'd rather play ping pong where it goes back and forth and you don't know where it's going to go. You really have no idea and that's kind of fun to listen to. It's more spontaneous. I think it's really brave as well. I mean, I've been doing this show. This show's coming up on its 100th episode and oh. I'm still, as you can see here, uh, I've got a list of bullet points. But I but I, I'm tempted to, to, to start ditching it as well. You know, you know something funny happened. Since, I, since the book is about to come out and I'm, I'm being interviewed a lot, three people in a row who were interviewing me said, 
I'm taking a cue from your book, and I'm not going to ask you any, I don't have a list of questions. Really? And it was just a pure conversation. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that to me. Not only was the conversation more fluid and spontaneous, something happened to me as the person being interviewed. I opened up in a way I don't often do. I didn't give them any stock answers, things I'd said before. I don't try to give stock answers, but you can't help it when you when you talk about the right. same thing over and over. Right, right, right. But I was, it changed the way I responded to them. And that's, that's what I found happening with the scientists when I interviewed them. You know what, Alan? I'm going to do it. He's, I, I, oh, my God. Is, he's closing I'm, the I'm lid closing on his computer. the laptop. I'm going to do oh, it. you're I'm, number four now. This we're flying <laughs> solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so your book, your book is about, um, is about communication, and it's about basically how people don't really connect as much as they ought to and sort of the way that... See, without my, without well, my bullet points, okay. I'm completely okay, lost. Let me I don't give know you, what to do. I know like tips, but let me give you a tip. <laughs> Just keep looking at my face. All right. <laughs> you, when you're thinking of the question, you tend to look down away from me. And if you want to get something out of me, look at me and you'll take me in and it'll change you and it'll make the question spontaneous. It won't be so perfectly formed, but it'll be what you want to know. You That's know? a good point. Yeah, I, I, um, I went to acting school many years ago and you talk a lot about Viola Spolin's exercises. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about how those, why those have been helpful well, to Well, they were important years. to me as an actor. And it, the funny thing was I found that they changed me as a person, too. Right. I was, I've always had a little uh, social anxiety. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why. I, I actually found out lately that I, I have face blindness, and I, don't, I can't recognize people's faces. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm, once I couldn't remember my daughter's face. Twice I couldn't remember her face. Proposagnosia, I pro, guess. Pro, Prosopagnosia, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, right. I think that made me anxious, like at cocktail parties. I, I don't know if I'm talking to somebody who I know already. Right. So I've always been, I've always had this social anxiety, and I found once I improvised, once I learned from Viola Spolin's book, actually I worked with her son and with Viola, I learned that there really aren't any mistakes. Right. The mistake is just the thing that gets you to the next thing. Hmm. And it didn't bother me that I didn't recognize the people so much. Didn't, I didn't get so anxious with other people. I knew I could get by just by staying in the present moment and engaging the other person in the present moment. Nice. And that, that changed everything for me. And then I began to realize as I interviewed people, and I interviewed hundreds of them, I saw that I was getting connected to them through this, these techniques of improvisation, which basically are just connecting to the other person, right. being, being in sync with them, right. you know? And, and then I realized that it worked not just with the scientists I was interviewing, but it worked with everybody. One scientist said to me, this training has saved my marriage. So I realized I had, I had something to write about that was kind of important, that if we all can connect like this, we can work on marriages and parents and children, bosses and employees, just about everybody. I was thinking about how, you know, years ago when I came to New York, like age 18, I was, I think, very, very open to everything and everyone around me. I mean, I had social anxiety as well. I didn't really know, like when people said, what's up? 
You know, I didn't know what to do. Like, I literally would freeze and be yeah, like, oh, that's well, I, um, Let's I, I see. recently have, yeah, and start <laughs> that's scanning, great. right? I didn't know how to just say what's up, right? But now I know that. But, um, yeah. but, you know, I've been living in New York for 25 years. And, I mean, cities are one thing, adulthood, too. I feel like they close you down a little bit. Like, it's a, like I recall being on the subway when I was, you know, early on in New York and... I just had a tendency to kind of look at and maybe into the eyes of everyone around me. Yeah. And when and a guy at one point was like, "What the f you looking at?" You know. Yeah, like I right had that same experience. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 I think this training at improvisation can get you in trouble. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I used to sit on park benches talking to people who probably had schizophrenia, like who would tell me about yeah. elaborate theories and such. And, and you'd say, oh, how interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's all good. I, I, I think it is, but like you get older though and you also sort of are like, I guess what I'm saying is like, whatever you're trying to do, you are, you are, you are trying to balance, I think, openness and self-protection, right? Yeah, you, you have to take care of yourself. There's no doubt about that. And, and just naive openness is no good. But we protect ourselves so much that we don't pay attention. Right. And I've started since I have been working on this book, and I got better at connecting and communicating while I was working on the book hmm. because I paid so much attention to the process. Yeah. And I studied research and I called on my past experience as an actor and an improviser and that kind of thing. But what I learned to do is read people's faces who I, people I haven't, I've never met, I've never seen them before. I passed them in the street or hmm. I'm paying a bill at a cashier in a, at a diner. Right. And I, I try to figure out what they're feeling, what they're thinking. And even more than that, in, in the simplest possible way, I notice the color of their eyes, the shape of their eyebrows. Yeah. You know, I noticed early on that you 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 you, you need a shave. <laughs> well, this is probably th a no, style. Th this it's is my style. style. Yeah. Yeah. The audience can see it, but I have a very cool two-day. How do you keep here. it that length? I've always wondered. Well, well I, I learned a couple of years ago that you that if you get like one of those electric razors yeah. uh, on the lowest setting. They used to bug me because they don't give you a clean shave. Oh, so this way you get to keep it that this way. This way yeah. you get it this way. I anyway. kept, I had it a little bit like that in MASH for 11 years. <laughs> but I, I would, uh, I just let it grow to a certain length and then... Now the war is over, so you yeah, don't I don't have to... Yeah, I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> but I, I spend all day doing what you did on the subway but I, I try not to lock eyes with people, you know, because right. you can get into trouble. But I observe them, and I, I look at their expressions, the body language. Like, when you're playing a character like, like and I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on his name, but the guy you played in Louis C.K.'s thing. Yeah, uh, Uncle well, Pete. Uncle Pete. Right, how can I forget that's in the name of the show? But, um, but yeah, Uncle Pete, like, how... How do you connect with people when you are such a guarded and disconnected character? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, he, I'm not saying he's totally disconnected to himself, maybe, but he's got all these defenses around yeah. him. Yeah, you know? well, like, he's, he, he may be one of those people who uses whatever empathy he has to take advantage of other people. Right. You know, he doesn't have a huge amount of empathy. But empathy, as, as I say in the book, right. uh, is not something that makes you a nice person necessarily. And the way I define empathy, empathy yeah. is just f figuring out what the other person is going through emotionally. Right. But 
you can use that to help the other person or to make better contact with them, or you can use it to manipulate them. That's right. Communication, I mean, too, I mean, yeah, in general, Yeah, same right? thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a big difference between communicating science and propaganda. Right, I was going to say Joseph Goebbels was a good communicator. He was a good communicator, <laughs> yeah. and he knew how to scare people. An interrogator right. uh, who has you in his control uses his knowledge of your feelings to, to make you feel helpless, so you'll tell him anything he wants to hear. Right. Bullies know how to use our emotions against us. Yeah. They're pretty, I think bullies are pretty empathetic. Right. So, but overall you would, I mean, I think you would probably say that connectedness and communication is better than well, if, the alternative. Well, I think, I think if you want to communicate really well, you must use empathy and you have to build up as much empathy as you can. Yeah. And if you, if you don't, it tends to become, communication tends to become a one-way street. Right. if you're not taking into account the person you're talking to. Because what difference does it make what I say to you if it doesn't land in you? Right. If you misunderstand it or you oppose it or you're not, you're not in the market for that kind of information in the <laughs> right, first place. Right, 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 right. <laughs> that actually brings me to, like I was hoping you, you bring up how in World War I the like Christmas detente, like yeah. where basically basically spontaneously all along the Western Front, people like the the English and the Germans, yeah, were like coming out of the trenches periodically. Right. They, to they would exchange gifts at Christmas. They played soccer together. You know? Yeah. And I just, I found that extraordinarily moving. And I, I just wanted to maybe talk a little bit about like what, what that means to you. Like what... Well, what it, the reason I related I know, yeah, the story yeah. and what it means to me is that for good communication to take place, right. it's kind of important to establish a commonality with the other person, right. which leads to a familiarity, a sense that we're, we're both pretty much in the same boat. We share similar values. We might share similar backgrounds. The Germans, in that extraordinary Christmas moment where they stopped shooting at each other and started talking to each other and right. playing games, at one point, a German called out to the British, we're both Saxons, why, why, why are we shooting at each other? Words to that effect. Right. But they, he called on their common ancestry. Yeah. And teachers uh, have found in a study that was done that when they could identify five things they had in common with a, with a student, yeah. the student's grades went up. The teacher was more effective. The student was better at listening. The sense that you're similar to this other person, if you can find out what makes you similar, really improves the interaction. I know a, a guy who's a master salesman. He says, when I go in to talk to somebody, the first thing I talk about is the people we know in common. Right. Bill, isn't he something? You know, he told me he went on vacation last week. He forgot his canoe, you know, and all of a sudden you're connected. Yeah, I mean, the thing, I guess the sinister side of that is is the fact that we're better at identifying, like, we're better at taking those cues visually, like, in terms of race, uh, well, yeah. age, you yeah. know, whatever it might be. Yeah, there's so, no, well, I think we have that in us. I think that's, that could be, other, I'm not the one to say this, other people have said this, that it could be a, a way to promote our own gene set. Right. 
that we, we, want, we don't want to include too much from the outside. But right. actually, the, the odd thing about that is that hybrid vigor comes from including the outside, and we, and we get better. And, yeah. Uh, but well, I mean, maybe genes. maybe it could also be it could also be maybe learned behavior from tribal times where people who didn't look like you were your enemy and were or you had likely to be worried to about you them. Or, you could yeah, yeah. bet you the odds might be better that you could trust your kin than somebody else. On the other hand, we find that most people who are shot are killed by relatives. <laughs> so, so maybe we weren't that smart at figuring things out when we had the cave to worry about. Yeah, evolution is, is sometimes a very intelligent designer. But the thing about, about these stories, about I, I always smile when I see a story that says, the reason we behave this way is that when we were prehistoric right. and lived in a cave, it made sense to do such and such. <laughs> right. How the hell do we know? Yeah, you know, I mean, this, and that's possible. It's also possible there's another explanation. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's speculation. But I mean, we yeah. can probably, like if we took 25 explanations of any given probably evolutionary phenomenon, we could maybe rank them in terms of yeah. likelihood. And, and, and by the same token, I think it's fun to speculate. I used to have a lot of fun trying to get scientists on the science show to speculate. Right. And, and understandably, they don't really like it. But in a way, a hypothesis <laughs> is the next step after a speculation. So it, it doesn't hurt to reach into the dark and see what you can find. Yeah, I guess the type of scientist may influence that as well. Like, Theoretical physicists really like to speculate. I they think. really go way <laughs> out, but but they, but they have the math they say to back it up. Yes, yes, that's was, what amazes me that I, they can understand the math, and I I just have to trust that they've got something. No, that's right. I, I was very surprised to learn recently. So recently, I had um, Lawrence Krauss, who who you yeah, know, I know Lawrence, on, yeah. on the show, and um, and I read his new book twice because I literally like literally did not I could not understand you know his, he's a very great he's a great writer very clear but his ex you know electromagnetism is complicated you know yeah. so it, I read it through twice and and it was wonderful because I if I listen back to earlier episodes of this show, I realized that I used to think that theoretical physicists were just out of their minds. You know, that, <laughs> that, 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 that this stuff about, you know, multiple dimensions, yeah, and, yeah. It was just, they were just like, you know, getting high and coming up with it or something. But no, not at all. Like there is math. There's math, but I don't know if they can say <laughs> without experimental uh, evidence, I don't know if they can say definitely. And that's why Einstein was, right. although he had the math that showed... Uh, that general relativity w worked. Right. He, he he was longing for the experiment that would uh, give evidence for it, and he was very excited when the experiment did do that. But these things that they come up with through math, sometimes it takes a hundred years for us to see not just that yeah. it works, but that it's part of our daily lives. Like Einstein's relativity, we now carry around in our pockets. It, we wouldn't have GPS without right. his theory. That's why math is so incredible. And that's why, I mean, I, I mentioned to you before we started this interview, your, your um, friend Steve Strogatz. Yeah. In the introduction to his book, he talks about an artist friend who doesn't, and, and I, this I think is you. It, it was me. Yeah, yeah, who regrets not or who feels bad about not understanding math. And I feel the exact same thing. Like yeah. I, I somehow missed it in high school and thought that like art was all that mattered really. Yeah. 
And but math is like it's magic. Math, math it's is incredible. It's, like, it's it seems like a beautiful thing, and, and I don't want to ignore beautiful things. <laughs> right. And I wish I, I wish I had the background in it. I every time Steve and I get together, we spend an hour or two, where he say, he tries again to help me understand what calculus is and that that kind of thing. I think it's hopeless after a certain age. I don't think know, so. I me, think I, I he's um, he and Brian Green both say that you can get a glimmer of it through words. They, I think they both agree that you got to sit down and work hard to get yeah. the inside workings of it. But what's interesting about what you just mentioned about how he mentioned in the, in the book that he had a friend, me, who wished he knew more about math. I was who he was thinking about as he wrote the book. He was writing the book to me. That's wonderful. And that's one reason, I think, why the book is so readable, because he's talking to a person. He's not saying everything he needs to say, everything he wants to say about math. He's communicating to me. He's telling me what he's thinking about where I am in my head, what he needs right. to tell me each step along the way to carry me forward. That's communication. The other thing is just spraying information at somebody and they don't they don't necessarily get it. Yeah, I hope I'm I'm looking forward to it because I I am also a math agnostic everyman and I, <laughs> I really I'm really hoping it can help me as well to understand some of the basic concepts. Um, I think it, this is the time to introduce a different kind of spontaneity where the video producers a big thing have picked short interview clips on uh -huh. different subjects yeah. for you and me to watch and talk uh -huh. about. Okay. Okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah, good. so let's see what, I don't know what they are. Wasn't this fun just having a conversation? It was good, and I and we'll continue to have a conversation, yeah. and you are absolutely right, and you know, you know what it is? I'm afraid of the, of the, you know what the French call the l'esprit d'escalier, yes, which is I, the, Yes, I know that well. Yeah, yeah. I carry my own staircase around. <laughs> Yeah, so for the listeners, that's like the spirit of the staircase. Like when you walk out of the interview and you're like, darn, why didn't, don't. I should have said this. Yeah. But the thing is, that's true of everything. There isn't any activity where we couldn't have done it better. You have to just let it go. Yeah. I I mean, and then the more you get in the habit of letting it go, and at least as far as my experience leads me to understand, mm. the more I just say what really happened was the product of some spontaneous interaction and some chemistry took place. Right. I might have wished some other chemistry could have taken place as well, but if I made sure I hit every mark that I wanted to hit, maybe no chemistry would take place because it's all in the head, it's all uh, regulated. There, there, needs to be, there needs to be this interaction between order and spontaneity. Right, and, and it's like jumping back and forth in your head and into different circuits, different ways of thinking. And you can get used to doing that, but I think the greatest emphasis should be on connection because then stuff comes out of us that we didn't know was in there. I think that that's got to be 100% right. I mean, because, because that's the stuff that matters. That's the stuff right. you remember. Is yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it it it, it means it tends to mean more to you. Exactly right, which is why you remember it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. All right, so let's see what we have here. So we've got human beings are information-seeking creatures. James Glick, who's a who's a writer. Yeah, I love his work. So let's see what he's got to say. 
Humanity has always been readjusting to developments in the flow of information. Printed books appeared in Europe, people had to readjust their thinking. Uh, the telegraph made it possible to send instantaneous messages from one place to another place a hundred miles away. People had to readjust and they weren't always aware of the ways in which they were readjusting. One of the ways the telegraph changed us as humans was it gave us a new sense of what time is. T the time was whatever it was wherever you were. It was only when the telegraph made it possible to synchronize human activity across great distances that we needed to understand time in what I think it's fair to say is the modern way we understand it now. How is the internet going to force us to readjust? Certainly in ways that we can't yet guess because these are early days for the internet and just as certainly in ways that we're beginning to get a glimmering of. We already, I think, uh, are familiar with this syndrome of being at a dinner party and, and hearing an argument break out about who was the star of that movie five years ago. You reach for the device in your pocket because you know that even if you don't know the answer, the answer is thumb's length away. That changes us. I mean, it makes the conversation seem pointless, boring, I don't know, choose your poison. We humans are information-seeking creatures. So years ago, I got, my, my, my son is, is nine now, and I got him a t-shirt because he was, he, he had a tendency, which I think I have also, to want to be a know-it-all, to like know everything, you know, <laughs> yeah. in advance. And so yeah. I got him a t-shirt, which in Latin said, learning is more important than knowing. Yeah, good. Yeah. So, but I want to I want to talk about that because like that's a really interesting thing at the heart of like curiosity and science is that like on the one hand wanting to know, wanting to know, wanting to have the information, wanting to know what's the latest study whatever. And on the other hand, that kind of open curiosity and not knowing which which you tried to like exemplify and bring out on on that Scientific American show. I don't know, this is a big, well, complicated well, question. Well, I, I was very curious, which is why I did the show. Yeah. And I wanted to understand everything I could from the scientists I was talking to. Yeah. And I think I was an example of what uh, James Glick is talking about here, which is that I was curious and wanted information. And I saw this played out in a way I didn't expect when I started a contest for scientists. Right. Uh, called the flame challenge because right. I didn't when I was 11 years old I didn't know what a flame was I, I couldn't understand what was going on in there I'd never seen anything like it right. anywhere else in nature so I asked the teacher what's what's in the flame what's happening in there and all she could tell me was it's oxidation right. sort of get out of here kid. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So she, didn't, she couldn't she couldn't explain it anymore. she was just reaching for a word she knew was associated with it yeah. So a few years ago, I started a contest for scientists to explain what a flame is. Right. So an 11-year-old would understand it and be engaged by the explanation. And we've done this contest now every year with a different subject that the kids choose. Yeah. This year it's what is, uh, what is energy. What I started to notice when the kids got these answers, the, 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 the kicker on this contest was the children, the eight, the 11-year-olds, the would be the judges of the contest. Right. 
So they were in a position to say to scientists, that's very good, but it could be a little clearer. You know, yeah, they, they love that. So. They were so <laughs> serious about the way they were judging these contests. And the most common complaint they've had every year has been there's not enough information in this. So it's exactly what That's Glick is talking about. I mean, I, I, I guess what, I, what I'm saying is that there's this tension in humans between wanting to learn and wanting to know. That is to say, we often act like we know yeah. or half think we know a lot quicker than we actually know and so so that's why in some ways communication fails a lot of times because people are like well it's blah 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 and they themselves don't even yeah, fully understand it. Yeah I think it. I like, think that there's not it's it's good to know things. Learning things should affect what we know. We should know things in my opinion. We should know things provisionally. Right. And we we need to get used to that that when you think you know something you really only know about it based on what you've learned so far. And when you learn more stuff, right. then that should change a little what you think you know because it may not apply to a whole set of situations that you've never encountered before. I had an interesting experience about this. Glick talked about yeah. new technologies updating our knowledge and the way we think. Right. And I had a very specific encounter once that really really set that in motion for me, it helped put it in relief. I was on Shelter Island, okay. which can only be reached by a ferry. Right. And I was with a guy who happened to be a billionaire. And I was interested in the way the billionaire thought. Okay. I figured maybe this has something to do with why he's a billionaire. One of the ferries got shut down. And that would have been with the ferry in operation, that would have been a 10-minute trip off the island. The other ferry was working, and that's a 40-minute trip off the island. Okay. So as soon as we got the news, I updated my thinking, and I said, I'm getting out of here, and I'm taking the, the long way around because I'm not going to waste my time driving to the ferry that shut down. The billionaire, however, updated his thinking right up until the last second. Mm. He was willing to take either either exit, but he wanted to make sure he didn't go on the 40-minute trip before he was absolutely certain the 10-minute trip was cut off for real. Gotcha. So he was, it was a little like how, the way I understand Bayesian mathematics. Right, right. He was willing to keep the probabilities open. Right. Yeah. And that may be why he was a billionaire, <laughs> because he didn't stick with what he thought he knew. He kept updating what he thought he knew. And it changed the way he understood what he knew. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, this thing that I'm stuck on is like that I think it has to do with our you know, relationship to power and, and expertise and whatever, where we, we, in trying to negotiate like being in charge of our lives, a lot of times yeah. we foreclose on knowledge. It's a very curious problem. It's a real human problem. You have to trust people who know more than you right. to some extent. I mean, we should all rely on evidence, but we can't do the experiments ourselves. Right. <laughs> I, mean, not, I mean, to trust that drinking this milk is going to be safe. Uh, we have to trust that the whole supply chain has kept it refrigerated and that the pasteurization project process really worked right. and that kind of thing. Right. Does, Unless and, we're going to go be Henry David Thoreau and try to grow all, you know, basically right. devote our lives to growing but, all and, our and, own and, I mean, you have to simplify your life more than most of us want to or can. But 
there's a, there's a tension between trusting and letting other people do your thinking for you. It's just a little different. Yeah. Because when you trust somebody, I think you're in a position to keep asking them questions. But if you let somebody do your thinking for you, usually that means questions aren't allowed. As many uh, artists experience with their financial managers. Yes, <laughs> that's a good example. Right. It's a good example. Or if somebody says, you must believe this, or you can't be in this group anymore. Right. Well, yeah, then right. I can't question it. Is, is, so what, if, what if this thing I'm supposed to believe isn't really true? And what if I'm going to waste my life on something that's not true? And whether that's a political system or a religious system or a philosophy of life, you know, yeah. all kinds of things where, where you're asked to say, okay, everything that I rely on to test out the world, I have to put aside now because this person's going to guide my every motion. Remember when, yeah, when the, the Moon, Reverend Moon, right, he sure. would marry 200 people at a time. I think some of them barely knew each other, if they knew each other at all. But he said, I'm going to fix everything up for you. You're, just, you're going to live your life the way I tell you. Yeah, I think that's always a red flag. Like, if, if you ever find yourself in a situation where somebody is telling you to, I mean, like you said, like, you can't avoid placing your trust in others, that you, can't, you, you really you, can't live we, like that. We have to. We have to trust. And but, that's, that's why communication involves establishing trust right. through commonality, through a freedom of, of expression, you know, where, where you don't look like you're hiding something and you hopefully you're not hiding anything. Right. I, you know what I want to ask you about, actually? Because I think good communication also involves communicating distrust, communicating concern, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. Like, as an actor and like you're you know you've been dealing with working on broadway working hollywood whatever television film those environments can be pretty intense pretty predatory whatever like i wonder like what what your experience has been of like communication with directors and you know like trying to trying to learn as you moved up through all yeah. that how to like how to communicate what you needed as an actor, how to not be like run over, how, but how to also yeah. listen, you know. Yeah, actors and directors are sometimes <laughs> at odds like that because direct, some, some directors want to be responsible for your every move as an actor. They, in the way they want to act the part through you. You're like a chess piece. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, which is not the best way to get the creativity of the actor to come to the surface. Mm. And some directors are poor communicators. There used to be a radio show with a character, this was in the, like the 30s or 40s, where, where a character would, was called Lamont Kranz. Yes, of course, you know, you know, I know Lamont Kranz. Yeah. And this is The Shadow, right? The Shadow, right. Yeah. And yeah. so they would, people would refer to a director sometimes using the tagline of the show, and he'd say, he's Lamont Cranston, this director. He has the power to cloud men's minds. <laughs> And I mean, it, it's very hard when you're when you're you see something in the script if you're directing, and the actor doesn't get it. You don't want to swamp the actor with your impression of it. But if you see them going totally off in the wrong direction, right? How do you how do you get them back without shackling them? It's a, it's a very tough thing. It's very, it takes I mean, a very talented person to be able to help you own it. And but do it. in like negotiating that, I mean, as an actor or a director or both, like, has have there come points where you've like gone along to get along, or where you've just walked off because it was like, you know what, this isn't gonna. If I, don't, I don't. I don't think I ever walked off. Yeah. 
I would just keep asking questions. Mm. Some people say, some people handle it by saying, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And then they totally ignore it. <laughs> that's not a bad strategy sometimes, <laughs> right? Depends on the individual and how closely the director, how closely yeah, it depends they're paying how much, uh, how much uh, determination the director has to get it to do, do it your way. But sometimes a director will say, <laughs> and this is really corny, he'd say, you know, four takes back, you did this wonderful thing where you had this, do that again. Right, you can't remember, right? That, yeah. You never did it. <laughs> he's, he's putting it in your head. Uh, and he's telling you, you did this, now do it again. Let's go in that direction. You know, but it's, it's a way of manipulating. And you feel the manipulation. Anytime you feel manipulated, right. the whole thing is dead. It's over. And that, yeah, that's true in all forms of communication. And that's one of the big points you make in the book is that the tips and the tricks that people use to try to like get what they want out yeah. of other people. I mean, they can succeed for a while, but like on the whole, you don't, it you doesn't don't establish build, that organic. Yeah, it doesn't connection. build anything that can be lasting. Yeah. In that way, it applies very much to people in a marriage. If, if you're going to keep going year after year and taking as much as you can from the other person, which, whichever partner you are. Right eventually you'll probably have to pay the bill in some way <laughs> you know the other person will get bored with you or rebel right or just go dead yeah you can only sort of lie to yourself for so long or to the other person right. when it comes to I, communication yeah, yeah it it it's it's not a, you can't get a free ride i don't think you really got to work with the other person it's it's such it's such a strange thing isn't it we're social yeah. animals right we're driven to be together, and yet we act as if we're condemned to be together. Yeah, we know what it feels like to connect authentically. Like, we know what that is, yeah. but we lie to ourselves all the time in all kinds of ways about it. You know, think we're connecting, assume it's okay, yeah. you know, whatever, bluster our way through situations, right. whatever, yeah. I, I can tell you, the bo as the boss, I can tell you, this is what I need to get done. I need you to do it this way, that way, and then we get it done by six o'clock. Okay, great, good, see you later. Yeah. I haven't found out if you're capable of doing it, if you- <laughs> Right, if or you if understood, I understood anything understood you understood what said, you're yeah. supposed to do. Right. <laughs> and if you think you can get it done, plus the other things I told you yesterday, you have to get done by six o'clock today. Right. I can't just pour stuff into your head and expect you to be a, an empty vessel and then out will come from the spigot everything I need from you. Yeah, right, and right, exactly. And we, we could, there's a lot more to be said on that subject, but I, I just want to remind the audience before we have to go that Alan Alda's new book is If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And it caused me to abandon my bullet points and have a wonderful conversation. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, uh, that's so great, thank <laughs> you very much. So that wraps up another episode of Think Again. If you are a fan of the show, either new to us or you've been with us for a long time, I have a question for you. I'm thinking of starting a Facebook group, which would be a place where, you know, the community behind this uh, show or the people that are into what we're talking about could come together and discuss specific episodes or ideas that are brought up on the show or anything else really that relates to the kind of thing that we do. If this is something that interests you, tweet at me at um, 
big think again that's our handle one word big think again or email me at jason at bigthink.com i would call it friends of think again a big think podcast and i'll probably start it within the next couple weeks if there's enough interest so if you're interested let me know because i don't want to start it if it's going to be yet another internet ghost town there are enough of those out there all right we'll be back next week with another interesting conversation and uh hope to have you join us this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.